Now we've been looking at a rebellion against the king of Israel, led by his own son. And it comes to an abrupt stop today because God determines it. Here's a son whom his father loves, and he dies as a traitor and an enemy because that's what he's become by his own choice. And God gives people time. He gives them options, the ability to choose how I'm going to live my life. And then everybody comes to a time that is awesome. It inspires fear. We use that word awesome in the same way we use the word cool. Oh, that's awesome, dude. But awe is properly that kind of feeling you get in the presence of something truly amazing and overpowering and momentous. And that time is when you run out of chances and you run out of choices and you run out of time and God says, you're done. And then you come face to face with God in judgment. And the only question then is, are you right with him? Or are you rebelling against him? The right use of our days and our years is in preparing for that time. Because nobody can avoid it. What you want to do is reconcile with God before it's too late, because the time is coming. Are you prepared for that time? So I'm reading in 2 Samuel chapter 18. It says, And David numbered the people who were with him, and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. But the people answered, you shall not go out. For if we flee away, they won't care about us. Nor if half of us die will they care about us. But you're worth 10,000 of us now. For you are of more help to us in this city. Then the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, saying, 
Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains orders concerning Absalom. So here we see that David has to fight. He really doesn't have a choice. Well, he has a choice. Let Absalom kill him. Just kill me now. That's one choice. But it's not really right. There's no reason for Absalom to rebel like this, to want to kill David. So it's legitimate for David to defend his life and to not die. So he has to fight. He really doesn't have an option here. And Absalom has followed David to this city called Mahanaim with all of Israel that follows him. And David wants to bear his share of the fight because it's about him. He says, I'll go out with you. And they say, no, don't do it. Because really the fight is about you. And if they get you, it's over. So we will protect you. We want to do this. And David says, okay, I'll stay behind. And then he says something that you can't say when you're about to go into battle. Deal gently with the young man Absalom. Now, maybe David is hoping that even at this point, we could reconcile, we could patch up our differences. Something could happen. And he doesn't want to fight. He doesn't hate Absalom. He's not trying to take anything away from Absalom. So there's no reason on David's part to fight except to defend himself. But he does have to do that. Now, Absalom has come to fight. He has come to take the kingdom. He has come to kill David. No question there. If he got David in his hands, he would not show him mercy. He would kill him. So David can't avoid fighting. Absalom doesn't want to avoid fighting. Only one person's going to walk away from this battle. But what we see here is that God make sure that Absalom loses. God is fighting for Absalom. Verse 6. So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown there by, before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule which was under him went on. Now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, 
You just saw him. Why didn't you strike him there to the ground? It would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware, lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise I would have dealt falsely against my own life. For there's nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. Joab said, I can't linger with you. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. So Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab held back the people, and they took Absalom, cast him into a large pit in the woods, and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And to this day, it is called Absalom's Monument. So here we're told the battle was against Israel. And 20,000 men are slaughtered. The battle takes place in a forest. And more people die in the forest than in battle. Don't you find that interesting? That is, how do you die in a forest? Do you, do you trip over a twig and then a tree falls on you? Okay, there's lions and there's bears and there's snakes, I suppose. Uh, quicksand? I know I've never been killed in a forest. I've been in a lot of forests. Oh, look, there goes Bambi right there. So more people died in the forest. Now think about this. In a battle, somebody's swinging a sword at you trying to cut you. But you walk into the forest and you get killed. That means God is fighting for David. And it's really important to see that God is fighting for David. Because you could say, yeah, David sinned against God. But you don't draw the conclusion, God is never going to help David again. Because that's not true. God is disciplining David, but he's not destroying him. He never wanted to destroy David. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 11 that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He's made a decision. He's not a man that he would change his mind. Will he discipline us? Yes. 
Will he break every bone in our body? If he has to, will we learn? Oh, yes. Yes, we will, because he's the best teacher. But he's not doing this to destroy us. He's doing this to discipline us that we would share his holiness. And so every bit of discipline you can thank God for, that is for your character and it is for your blessedness in eternity. And yes, God allowed Absalom to choose to destroy David, to choose to overthrow the kingdom, to choose to use his position to draw people after him and make himself look great and say, we're going to take over the country and change things around here. We're going to be great and all that. God, let's say, Absalom, choose options. But then God is still listening to David. And David prayed some chapters back, Oh God, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. And God does that. And that's where the battle is won, right there. Because David prayed, and God answered that prayer. Even Ahithophel knows this. We're doomed. We've already lost. This is futile. So now God has made this forest the most dangerous forest in the world. You go in there, you're not coming out again. Now, Here's an example of how a forest can kill more guys than an army of guy, guys with swords, right? Absalom. He's riding on his donkey, and I think... He's in retreat because Israel was beaten. 20,000 guys get killed. And he's thinking, well, okay, today it doesn't look good, but we'll do it again next time. So the best thing is get out of there. He's on his escape donkey. Clippity-clop, clippity-clop. I'm going to get away from here and then figure out what I'm going to do later. I'm still king, so... So he's getting out of there, and then he gets his head caught in a tree. I don't know how you get your head caught in a tree, but he did. It doesn't say he's hanging by his hair, by the way. It just says he got his head caught in a tree, some branch. But you think now, you're on a donkey, right? So you're not that far off the ground. How is it that you get your head caught in such a way that you can't reach the ground? You could do this over and over again and still never get caught in the tree or get left hanging. You could just pull your head out and keep on going. Man, that hurt, but get some aspirin and keep on rolling. But somehow, he can't reach the ground. And just think about this. In one move, God has stripped Absalom of everything. There he is, hanging in a tree. 
He has no army. He doesn't have those 50 men to run before his chariot like he used to. He doesn't have any distinguished members of Jerusalem society around him supporting him. He has no counselors, no spies, no one to help him. He may not even be conscious. Because the guy who tells Joab, I saw Absalom hanging in a tree, he didn't say, I saw Absalom thrashing in a tree trying to get himself out. It could be the force of the blow just stunned him. And he's just hanging there. Doesn't know what's going on. And the crazy thing is, Absalom has no more options. So, here he's come to the end of the line. And God lets people do what they want. Free reign. So if you want to store nuclear weapons close to the border of a country so you can threaten them, you can do stuff like that. You can do anything you want. But then, at a certain point, God says, you're done. And then you're out of options. You can't even bargain with God for five more minutes. You can't do anything. You can't say anything. Now, Job says, why, don't, why didn't you kill him? He says, I would have rewarded you. And the guy says, oh, yeah, you would have hung me out to dry. This guy knows Joab a little bit. He says, I wouldn't touch him. You heard the king. We all heard the king. Go easy on him. Now, Joab says, you know what? I don't have time for this. He grabs three spears. And then ten other guys get around Absalom, start hacking away. Is he dead yet? I think so. Well, hit him again. Make sure. So they kill him. And then they bury him. Just throw him in here, throw a bunch of stones on him. We're done. Why does Joab deliberately disobey David? You know, Absalom has had a lot of chances to change his mind. He's had years and years and years to think things out. And you wonder, is Absalom at a point where he would change his mind? Was it, do you think he would submit to the king and say, you know what? I don't know what I was thinking, but I am wrong and you're right. I'm going to get down on my knees, surrender my sword, and just say, you know, I'm sorry. Do you think he would ever do that? Well, he was running away on his donkey. So I kind of think, no. That wasn't anywhere in his mind. So what Joab does is just take the choice out of David's hand. Maybe David would have spared him. But Joab thinks, what for?
This guy's not going to change. So you're done. You've sealed your fate. Now, the last thing we see about Absalom is in verse 18, where before he died, he set up a pillar to himself as a monument. So people would look at that and say, hmm, Absalom. Mm. And he says, I don't have a son to carry on my name. Now, you know, in chapter 14, it says he had three sons. But evidently, none of them survived. So Absalom says, I want people to remember me. I want to live on in people's memory. But when you think of Absalom, you don't think of, gee, a great guy with 50 guys in front of him running. Impressive. All you think of him is as a traitor and a murderer and a deceiver, self-centered. So he thought very well of himself. But by his own actions... You only remember him as a jerk. Like, very pretty, great hair. We all aspire to that. But in the end, he made himself that. Now, this last part is long, but it's interesting. Stick with me. Verse 19. Then Nehemiah, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run now and take the news to the king, how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day. But today you shall take no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you've seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. And Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. So Joab said, Why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? But whatever happens, he said, Let me run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimeaz ran in by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate, to the wall, lifted his eyes, and looked, and there was a man running alone. Then the watchman cried out and told the king, and the king said, If he's alone, there's news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. Then the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, there's another man running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok. And the king says, he's a good man and comes with good news. So Ahimeaz called out and said to the king, all is well. Then he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. The king said, 
Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimeaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and me your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Just then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, There is good news, my lord the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against you to do harm be like that young man. Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, David, in this section, hears the good news that he does not want to hear, that his enemy is dead. And we got this Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok. He wants to bring this message to King David. And the reason why he wants to do this is because he and the son of the other priest, whose name was Jonathan, both of these guys have been running messages for King David during this rebellion. And Joab says, why do you want to do this since there will be no reward for you? And it's likely that what, Abs uh, what Ahimeaz was thinking is a chance to deliver good news. You get another reward. And Joab says, there's no reward in this. This is not good news. Don't do this. And so he turns down Ahimeaz and he says to this guy who we only know as the Cushite, he says, it's a really brief message, isn't it? He says, go tell him what you've seen. And the Cushite goes, bows and starts running. So you'd think Ahimeaz would just let it lie there. The decision's been made, but he keeps pestering Joab. Let me go. Let me go. And Joab says, what is it? What do you care? And he says, well, let me go anyway. And evidently, Joab says, well, it's your funeral. The king may not enjoy this. But Ahimeaz, he wants to go. Now look at the difference between these two guys. Look at the difference in their orders. Joab specifically told the Cushite, go and tell him. Ahimeaz is actually acting against orders. Because Joab told him, don't go. And finally, he pesters him until Joab says, okay, fine. He's letting him go, but he's not telling him to go. Ahimeaz is just running on his own. 
Look at the difference in their running ability. You know, the Cushite is just one foot in front of the other. No style. Ahimeas has, has style. I mean, a watchman can see him on the wall and say, oh, I think it's Ahimeas. Does he have this chariots of fire kind of a move or so that a watchman can see? I think it's Ahimeas, the son of Zadok. I mean, look at him. Style. The Cushite doesn't have any style. Nobody would say, oh, here comes, what's his face? The Cushite. But that's another thing. Look at the reputation. Ahimeas is the son of the high priest. And people know who he is. Even David says, oh, he's a good guy. He'll have good news. Do we know who the Cushite is? He's a nobody. He doesn't have a name. Ahimeas has a name. Cushite has no name. That means he's probably expendable. Let's say David doesn't want to hear that. Kill him. Probably wouldn't happen to Ahimeas because he's somebody. You can't kill the high priest's son and say it was an accident. That's an itchy trigger finger here, and it, just, it went off. I'm sorry, but but the Cushite, nobody would miss him. But you know the biggest difference between these guys is one of them delivers the message faithfully, and the other one doesn't. Because see, Ahimehaz tells the good news. God has delivered you. But David asks him about Absalom. And he says, I don't know. Now that isn't true. Because he was right there. And he saw the same as the Cushite. So it's not true. Ahimeaz knows exactly what happened to Absalom, and he's not telling him. And he changed the message because he thought it would get him a reward. That's not faithful. That's manipulating it for himself. So the king would like him and say, well done, here's a reward. Now, the Cushite, he's a so-so runner. He's a nobody. He's, a not, he's not valuable, and he got there last. But he gets the most important thing right. He is a faithful messenger. And you notice how Joab doesn't even have to spell it out for him? See, now, look at me, look at me. I want you to tell him this, this, and this. Repeat it back to me so I know you got it right. No, you missed the second part. Joab can just say, go, tell him. And he knows that the Cushite is going to say exactly what needs to be said. He's a faithful messenger. So he has to face a king who could kill him and tell him the truth that he needs to hear. 
May all the enemies of my Lord the King be as that young man. See, he's not the king's son. He hasn't acted like the king's son. He's a traitor. He's an enemy. And he died as a traitor and an enemy. And that's who he is. He's not a son that you can embrace because he's got a knife in his hand. And if you let him get that close to you, he will kill you. He is no son. He is an enemy. And so he got what he deserved for raising a hand against the anointed king of God. Now, I want to challenge you with this. What we have here really is a graphic representation of the gospel. And you know, the first part of the gospel is really hard, and it's something that nobody wants to hear. The first part of the gospel is you are a sinner an enemy of God. And you know, people don't want to hear that. And it's mainly because it's true. They are enemies of God. I was, I was in a coffee shop talking to the girly and the barista, and that's nice tattoos, and we were getting along great until I showed her my card with John 3.16 on the back, and you could just see withdrawal. And all of a sudden, we're not buds anymore. And you know, I almost knew it was coming. You do it anyway. And people don't have a problem with God until you bring God close. And it's like the closer you bring God, it's like, no, I said, get him out of my face. We're not buds anymore. It's funny how that works. But this is because people are enemies with God. Now, people will say, you know, me and God, we're just like this. We're buds. I don't have a problem with God. Again, the closer God comes, the more you've realized this person has a real problem with God. Now, I think everybody here has proven to themselves that they're a sinner. But if you haven't, why don't you take this simple test? Okay? Just for the rest of the day, practice pleasing God in every way. So find out what pleases God and do it. Now, some of these, some of you are laughing already. Isn't that funny? Because you know that's not as simple as you would think. Because the reality is, you know that part of you does not want to do that. But you could prove this to yourself so easily. Just do everything that God wants you to do. Love your enemy. Forgive those who hurt you. Um, be open in your witness to the goodness and truth and mercy of God. And don't lie, 
don't steal, don't covet. Do all those things that please God. And you know, you find out real quick, I'm, I'm really not into this today. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And you realize, I am an enemy of God. Um, and the interesting thing about this is it's not that you don't have the actual power to please God. It's that you don't want to, which is a whole other thing. If you wanted to, you could make God happy with your life. You could do everything that he tells you to do. It's not rocket science. But the problem is, I only want to do what I want. It's such an interesting thing. Um, I was reading Charles Simeon, and he was a preacher in the time of Jane Austen. And this was a sermon from 1815. He says, it's not the physical power to please God. It is the moral strength to please God that we lack. We are powerless to actually want to please God. And Paul in Romans 7 says, the, the power to do it is there, but the willing to do it is not there. We're totally weak in that area. So, that's the first part of the gospel. That's a big hurdle to get over, isn't it? The gospel says that everyone has sinned and is a sinner and is falling short of the glory of God. Now, the next part of the gospel is that God calls us to repent. It means to change our mind so that we change our actions. And you know, he commands us. He's not negotiating like somehow he's going to get a sale from us. And he wants to know what are our terms, what would we buy, you know, and, and work it out so that we sign the deal. And God has another sale. He doesn't have to negotiate. He commands everyone, everywhere, to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now, for Absalom, repent would be to get on his knees before David, surrender his sword, and say, whatever you do with me will be just. That would be repentance. Anything short of that is not acceptable. And Absalom running away on a donkey is not repentance. That's just, I need more soldiers. I need more swords. But that's not, I give up. And see, God gives us time and chances to repent. And so we take every one of them. 
That is the wisdom of our lives. And especially, you trust Jesus to save you because he alone deals with sin and rebellion. You know, when, you, when he died on the cross, you died with him. And there's the end of that moral inability to please God. That's a tremendous change, isn't it? Nothing less than the cross is ever going to change you. You will not change yourself. When the Father raised Jesus from the dead, he also raised him to relationship. There's a relationship with the Father that nothing can break, nothing can change. That is the quality of the life that Jesus lives now. And so that death and that resurrection saves you in a way that David could never do. He says, oh, if I had only died instead of Absalom. But that wouldn't have solved anything. That just would have meant, okay, David's dead, and Absalom is still the self-centered, traitorous deceiver that he's always been. That's nowhere. What Absalom needed was the end of his old self and the beginning of a completely new self made in the image of Jesus. So, I'm trusting and I'm hoping that everybody has come to this point where you realize, I am that person. I am just like Absalom. And I'm not acting like a son or a daughter. I'm doing my own thing. And I'm trusting that everybody has repented and turned to Jesus. Here's how you know that you've really repented. And that is, you give up whatever that sword is. Because that sword is the sword that killed Jesus. And you don't want to just keep jamming it into Jesus on the cross and not realize what it means. That's why we want to turn away from what's wrong. That's why we want to pray, God, subdue me and make me like Jesus. And whatever it takes, I'm open. Because that's the only thing we can depend upon. You want Jesus in control of your life. Do you want that? Because that lets you know you're on the right track. Now, if that is so, the next step in the gospel is you become the messenger. And now it's, it's really you're commanded to deliver that message faithfully. Just like the Cushite. You can't change any of it because it might get you in trouble. And this is something that I experience 
that I want that person I'm talking to to like me. I want them to think I'm a great guy. There's a temptation there to hold back on the bad stuff. But Paul says that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes, they've got to have the truth in order to believe. And this first part about that person being a sinner, that has to be said. Because otherwise, a person will say, hey, all i got to do to to get God to bless me is just to join his, his side. That's all he's looking for. Okay, I'll sign up. I'm looking for blessing. Bless me. But you know, there's also that other side where there's going to be difficulties and trials because of Jesus. And a person has to be open for that or else they're going to say, I'm out of here. I only want the good stuff. I don't want God to do something that I don't want. You know about the the seed that falls on the shallow soil. No place for the roots. Springs up. But when there's trial and difficulty for the sake of the gospel, wilts. I only want the good stuff. I don't want the bad stuff. That person is not going to make it. They got to hear the bad stuff. So don't worry about people liking you. They don't. But you got to deliver the message faithfully because sin and rebellion have no future. See, the clock is ticking. And at a certain point, a person's time runs out. And there are no more choices and no more options. And then it's time to stand before God for judgment. So we want to be aware of that. And just realize, my time is God's time. He can use me any way he wants. I want to even step out and look for opportunities. Because that's part of the gospel. So... We're thankful that we can submit to God. Before it's too late, I hope everybody has done that. Now's the time. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you that you do give us time. Thank you for the options and really we get to choose. That's amazing. And our choices, you grant. You say, okay, you can do that. But not everything helps. And we we want you to be in charge of our lives. Because I know, I know I can run my life into the ground. And apart from you, I will do that. We thank you that you give us that space to repent and to change our minds and to say, you know what, I want to submit to you.
And that's my glory, to submit to you and to say whatever you want. And Heavenly Father, as we go places, make us aware of what you're doing and how you want to reach out to that person and that person. Help us to deliver the message faithfully. We can't do this apart from you. So we submit and we ask God, please fill me with your Holy Spirit and work in my life Make me a person after your own heart. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.